Homestyle Green, episode 136. Everything I ever knew or said about green sustainable design was probably wrong. Welcome back to another episode of Homestyle Green. This is the podcast dedicated to inspiring people to make a better place to live. I'm the host of the show, Matthew Cutler-Welsh, and that quote at the top there was by none other than Lloyd Alter who is a blogger and a writer over at Tree Hugger. And it's a, definitely a headline that sparked my interest and quite a few comments, I'd have to say, as well. And it relates to a couple of articles that were bouncing around the internet a few weeks ago. And as soon as I read it, I well, and actually saw the diagram because it's such a common diagram. I'll put, I'll put a... Um, Lincoln, we do refer to it in the interview, which we'll get into shortly. It's such a well-known diagram about passive solar design that uh, definitely sparked a lot of interest. So, uh, great opportunity. I reached out to Lloyd. I've been to have uh, I've been meaning to have Lloyd on the show for uh, some time because he's such a he's been doing this for for a long time. He's so well connected. He lives in Canada and he is an architect from from way back. But he's been writing about and passionate about sustainable design, green building, all those sort of topics that this show is dedicated to for a long, long time. So it's great to have an expert like that on the show. Before we get into that, um, I want to have a quick chat about ProClimate. And this week I reached out and um, found someone who uses ProClimate on a regular basis. And to do that, I came up with Dennis. And this is what... Dennis from DCD Building has to say about what he likes about using ProClimate products. There are, there are several different products on the market, and I suppose ProClimate um, benefits from brand leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, also, they have um, quite a good R&D process. And I suppose fundamentally, I'm fairly risk adverse. So while I'm very open to trying new things and looking at things differently and trying to create a new way of of getting from A to B, um, I don't necessarily like doing that on untested or untried products. Yeah. And ProClima has, you know, a very long time of being in the market. So while it's relatively new to the New Zealand market, it's been in the market for a long time and it's in a lot of very large markets and it does very well. And it, and as a result of that, it has a system that goes with it. It has a process to follow. It's that you can see videos on how it works. People have an understanding of it. It's a relatable um, product to those in the industry who are building in this space. Um, so as a result, um, it's very easy to get any information that you want on it. And further to that, when you come across something, because New Zealand loves to build bespoke architecture, when you come to something that's a little d- different or unique, oftentimes, if there isn't a direct um, comparison that's been done before, there is at least the knowledge resource bank to get that information to you um, that addresses your specific concern. That was Dennis Dowling there, owner of DCD Building down in Queenstown. And I had such a great time talking to Dennis, um, starting off about ProClimate, but ended up recording a whole interview because he is doing some amazing stuff in Queenstown, building some really high-spec houses. And I asked Dave uh, Dennis as part of that, who does he know that's doing something similar around the, the rest of the country? And he didn't really know. But I have just updated 
the directory on the Homestyle Green website. And if you head over to homestylegreen.com and click on the uh, link at the top of the page that says directory, you'll be go, you'll get uh, taken to a page that has, now has over a hundred uh, links to designers and builders who I've either interviewed on the show or have been recommended to me as being being the good guys. So check that out. And if you think you should be on that list, then let me know. It's free at the moment. I'm not charging anyone. Uh, it's just an independent list that I've put together. Um, it's uh, The idea is that people can filter it by location, by profession, so that you can find a good designer and a good builder. But I'm short on builders. And, and it's, I know it's a big problem here in Auckland and probably in other parts of the world, in well, the country, but the world as well. If you know of a good builder who's des- who's built and put together good performing houses, then let me know because I'd love to get them on that list. One other quick note before we get into this week's interview. Sorry, it's a bit of a long intro, but some important stuff going on right now. I'm going to have a seminar here in Auckland, which I've just launched. Um, some information is available about that too on the website. If you go to homestylegreen.com forward slash seminar, it's coming up on the 12th of November um, here in Auckland. And uh, we'd love to have you along to that. So um, head over to homestylegreen.com forward slash seminar and all the information is there. All right, now here is Lloyd Alter, and I started out asking Lloyd why he does what he does. Well, I was, uh, in fact, I've been through a number of careers. I started off as an architect, and I wasn't very happy with the way things were being built at the time, so I became a real estate developer where I would have greater control, and I wasn't very happy with the way things were being built. So then I went into the prefab world where I could control everything, the construction, the design, and everything, and started writing about prefab on the internet before there were even blogs. I was writing it all in sort of computer language and posting every day and became recognized as a sort of expert on prefabrication. In fact, I had the biggest prefab blog in the world because there weren't that many. And then I saw this little site called Treehugger kicking around and I started sending them green things that I had seen and they Mm -hmm. said, write some more for us and write some more for us. And before I was having more fun writing than I was having building prefabs. (laughs) And the next thing I knew I was working full time for them and it just went from there. And I ended up being a full-time writer. It led to a gig teaching at the local university and um, becoming editor and writing for other newspapers like The Guardian and magazines. And it was just sort of this, it just happened change of career. That's interesting. So it was your writing and and what became blogging that landed you a job as a lecturer as opposed to your all your experience studying architecture and working in the field. Yes. It was about communication, really. I found that I could communicate ideas in ways that people understood. And the after doing a lecture, the dean of the school at Ryerson said, why don't you come and teach sustainable design to our students who aren't getting any of it? Is that a struggle for architects and people in the building industry in general to communicate with people? 
I think so. I think that the tend among architects is to use a lot of jargon, to not speak clearly and plainly, to not um, get their impressions across of what they're trying to say. And so I do believe it's a big problem in communication. The other problem with architecture is things move very slowly. Codes change slowly. Attitudes change slowly. So they're not usually actually, I think, quite in the cutting edge of what the important things of sustainability are. Mm. I want to jump back to um, a little bit in your past where you said you you didn't like the way things were doing, so you you started uh, you just became a developer. Not an easy thing to do, um, but then you jumped into prefab. And how do you do that? I mean, it's pretty hard. When I think prefab, I think on a decent scale anyway. I'm thinking of a factory or at least a reasonable amount of investment. How do you how do you go from zero to uh, creating prefabricated buildings? I simply went to the largest prefab company in the country and said, you're building these ugly houses that aren't very sustainable, and why don't you let me go out and try and sell uh, modern green houses, and you'll build them for me? And they said, sure. So essentially, I became a salesman and went out and sold the idea of prefab. Everybody, you're absolutely right. Everybody who's tried to go up and set a factory up from scratch, it's a huge investment. It's very hard, and there's no reason to. So the industry was already going. There was the processes were already set up, but you just made it more green. Yeah. Is there still a future, or what are the what are the roadblocks for more prefabrication? Well, one of the big roadblocks, I think, here in uh, North America is that regular construction is actually very, very cheap because the Mm. trades, there are a lot of people who just sort of work. It doesn't take a lot of skill to build a traditional house. And everybody has here what I call square foot-itis, I guess you would call square meter-itis, that all people care about is what the price is per square foot. So if you look at conventional housing, which has plastic carpeting and two-by-four studs and cheap materials in that, it's almost impossible to compete with a production builder to do higher quality, to do better materials, to do healthy materials, to do green. It's really hard. So the one you've got is you've got a very small niche, a small subset of people who are actually interested. And that's the problem, convincing people that they want better insulation instead of granite counters. And what we end up waiting for is for the government to change the standards and then all the builders say, oh God, now I have to put in more insulation and better quality windows. Why are they doing this to me? Instead of the industry leading and saying, look what we can do. We can give you these fabulous houses that'll cost you nothing to heat and the air quality will be great and you'll be happy forever. They don't think that way. In your discussion with Ben, which is two years ago now, you... No, it's less than that. Oh, just less. Um, you made a comment about the understanding of people understanding the importance of moderation and price per square foot is 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 kind of the count... This is kind of the counter that of people saying, oh, maybe I do need a, a smaller car. Maybe I should move closer to work. Uh and then maybe I should have a smaller house. Is that happening? Is in particularly in North America, are people starting to to think maybe do I need the fifth bedroom and the fourth bathroom? 
No, they actually don't. And this is the real problem. I mean, it's what I've got. It's the thing of Jeevan's paradox that, you know, in the 50s, the average American, North American house was roughly 90 square meters, 900 square feet with three kids in it. And now it's two and a half times that with one and a half to two kids in it. Because, in fact, what happened is it cost the same to heat. Insulation got better. Windows got better. Uh Carpets got cheaper, um, fridges got cheaper, and instead of people living with less and saving their money, they just got bigger, 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 bigger. And it's really, really depressing to see. Then there were, about 10 years ago, there was a whole sort of movement from the not-so-big house, Sarah Susanka, yeah. and a whole series of wonderful books that said, take the same amount of money, build less, build better. Yeah, And then, of course, now there's been the explosion of the tiny house movement, which people say, I don't want to have mortgages. I don't want to have huge amounts of debts. I want to have just what I need to live uh, life in a small space. And But it's it's still the overall overarching trend still seems to be bigger, bigger, bigger. Yeah. The only countervailing thing that is happening in North America is that there's a very strong movement among young people and millennials that they don't want to be out in the suburbs. They want to stay in the city, particularly yeah. in Canada, where the schools downtown are really good, where the government is good. Uh, a lot of people, the most desirable thing is to stay downtown. And because the prices of housing in downtown Toronto, where I live, is so extraordinarily high, uh, people are forced to now live in apartments, live in smaller spaces. And so there's a big trend towards that in cities like San Francisco, New York, and Toronto and Vancouver. But in the rest of the country, it's the same old, same old. Mm -hmm. Which brings up a whole nother issue of how you retrofit cities uh, and, and brownfields developments um, and using existing infrastructure, using turning, turning old buildings into something useful for a different purpose. But that's kind of another topic. Really. Well, it isn't. It isn't at all, really. It's something that I was extremely... I used to be president of the local architectural preservation society. And my whole point, my whole point of discussion was that heritage is green that mm. these old buildings, the wonderful thing about old buildings is that they weren't value managed within an inch of their life. They yep. could actually be flexible. So when I was a developer, I converted a school into apartments and they're wonderful apartments and left the big hallways that kids can play in because they've got like a four meter wide hall that used to be between the classrooms. Yep. And uh, so these older buildings, the older industrial buildings, make wonderful conversions. And, and I bet, uh, they, I bet the they look good too. Yes, they've got good, nice aesthetic, like attention to detail, and, and they're just beautiful. Some of them are beautiful buildings, or can be. Yes, absolutely. And the new apartment cond condominiums that they build have floor-to-ceiling glass, whereas these old buildings often had massive brick walls, yeah. which is really good, to, useful to have much more control on the windows and be able to insulate the brick. So there's, uh, in fact, a lot to be said for that movement and the reuse and rehabilitation of old buildings. What's happened in Toronto right now is that 
and it's happening in New York City as well, is where it used to be, oh, I've got a six-story building. I'll convert that old warehouse into lovely flats. Mm. Now the attitude is, oh, I've got a six-story building. I'm going to knock it down and build a 60-story glass tower. That when there's that yeah, much right. pressure to get that dense, that all the heritage structures that could have been converted ended up just getting blown away. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and, and someone's like you mentioned the term value engineering. Someone's ever done that exercise on a spreadsheet somewhere and, and figured out, or assumed that that's the the best path to making their money. Oh yeah. Mm. And in this in this economy that right now it is this overheated real estate economy that we have over here. It pretty much is. And so we're losing a lot of those that building fabric that could have been converted or and you know that could be used for new businesses. Jane Jacobs famously said that you know um, old ideas can use new buildings, but new ideas need old buildings that that's where you get nice. the young people starting off that's where you get the artists living that's where you get the uh, the new businesses coming in. Yeah. I mean, that's where you, young people have something to do. You know, you can't find a record store or a tattoo parlor in the big mall. You can't find the things that people want when they want to live downtown. You've yeah. got to have a mix of all of these things in our cities. And unfortunately, we're losing it. Interesting. We're bordering on uh, some urban development uh, and um, social uh, engineering. <laughs> But, yes, but um, I want to move to the reason why I contacted you, uh, particularly right now, was an article that you commented on about um, passive. It was really about passive solar versus passive house, and yes. the the fallacy of some of the things that a lot of us in in my generation have been led to believe in the classic kind of um, cut through of a house showing. Um, good passive shading and use of thermal mass and that's how you build an energy efficient home right. and the the background to this was perhaps that all isn't relevant anymore is that a good summary of the the analysis that's that's a very good summary you know for years my whole thing again coming out of my heritage pre um, preservation background that we had to learn from old buildings and the way our grandparents built then the before the thermostat was invented you would have design for natural ventilation you'd design with high ceilings and big windows to get the sun in deep you'd build thick walls with thermal mass to hold the heat yeah uh, you do all of these things uh, was what the thesis was called the original green and then what happened over the la and what we all did in the 70s all of us all of the architects who were cared about energy did exactly what you said we would design big walls of south facing glass that would warm up the stone and the floor and the concrete in the floor and we did all kinds of crazy technical technical things like putting jugs of water in the south face to warm up <laughs> and it was all about sort of a lot of even then what I call green gizmos of sort of pumping water and trom walls to absorb the heat and all of these things and 
What happened, really, I go back to a story about a guy named Harold Orr, who lived in Regina, Saskatchewan, which is way, way north. It's cold, cold, cold Canada. Mm-hmm. And solar houses were all the rage back in the mid-70s. And so the government came to him and said, we want to do an experiment. We want you to build a solar house in Regina. And he starts thinking about it. And he says, well, there's no sun here from like November <laughs> until uh, till March. We're so far north. I mean, this is a really bad idea. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to instead build a super insulated house. And so it did have south facing windows and it did have careful shading over that windows, but it had a foot and a half of insulation around the whole thing. It was essentially what's really the first passive house. And People studied this house and studied the other more traditional solar houses for years and said, well, this thing hardly uses any energy at all. And it's so simple. And in fact, the house was visited by Wolfgang Feist, who founded the Passive House Movement. And it was one of the models for developing the Passive House Movement, which over the last couple of years, I've become a real fan of. And it finally became a sort of epiphany about two years ago that we were wrong that when you have even the passive house movement got this wrong with way too much glass they said okay we'll get all of our heating through these windows and we'll carefully shade the windows so that the summer sun can come uh is blocked but the winter sun isn't because the suns are at different elevation and they found it was really hard to do because it's easy to do at noon but at four o'clock and at nine in the morning, the sun's coming at an angle and they just really couldn't control it. And then they found that the windows had so much heat loss so that night they were getting cold anyway. And that the thermal mass in the floor really didn't do all that much. But what they they did find is that when you looked again at the passive houses, especially as the passive houses got better and didn't have so much windows that they overheated, all year round, which they were, once they started getting the balance right, you know, not too much glass, uh, lots of insulation, and forget about this thermal mass thing because it really doesn't work. And I'm saying, my God, as I did, I wrote a post and said that, you know, everything I ever knew or said about green sustainable design was probably wrong. And it's not just you saying this. I mean, there are others in there... um that oh, yeah. you're quoting, uh, uh, these are the leading, um, the thought leaders in, in the field, like uh, Alison Bailey's and uh, Joe St- um, Stebrick. Stebrick. Yes. I can never remember his, uh, how do you pronounce can, Joe's last name? I can never do it either. <laughs> Ste- I think you forget the L and you just go Stebrick or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I when, I, when I eventually meet him, it's going to be very embarrassing. But uh, <laughs> they're, they're, they're um, saying the same thing, aren't they? Yes. There was just a house that I consider a really big joke that the American government built, and it had robots, and it had special sunshades, and it had photovoltaics, and they threw like half a million dollars of technology at this house to find out what the best way to green a house, build a greenhouse was. Yeah. And what they came up with was, um, you should really just wrap it with a lot of insulation and have really good air sealing. Uh, that all of the other tech and the solar panels, it was totally pointless to the real point, which is just seal it all up. Now, again, 
you're in a different climate in New Zealand. I don't think you have the same conditions. I don't think you have anything like the cold that that we do in the north of the United States and in Canada. So it may well be a different condition, and these things may not apply there. Well, I don't know. Climate. I mean, the more I talk to people around the world, the more I think that we have a lot more in common than we do in difference. So we have about 80% humid, relative humidity uh, yeah. across most of the country, actually. And um, we have a, a temperate, cool to temperate climate. But like I say to people, any time that it's below 18 degrees outside, it's technically cold. Right. So you need a, a good thermal envelope to have a, a difference um, and to maintain that, that comfortable and healthy indoor environment. And you also need to create ventilation. So, yeah, we may not be minus... Um, 20, 40 degrees and, and not see the sun for, for five months. But we still it still gets cold. And I think people often forget that in these moderate climates where what we end up with is houses that kill people slowly rather than um, spectacularly fast. So we, we, we kind of um, perpetuate not building very well because we think it doesn't matter that much. Well, I was also talking to someone English who said that he has a real hard time convincing people that they need to do all this insulation, is that they like being cold, that they grew up in these drafty, yeah. freezing English houses, and they knew you put on a sweater, you put yeah. on the gloves. And yeah. this is what I always used to say, you know, put on a sweater, a dress to the season, do this, do that, that we were basically saying, be uncomfortable in yeah. your house. And unhealthy. And when we have and and unhealthy because of the possible condensation and mold, when we know when we have the technology that we could actually build really comfortable houses that you can live in all year round. Mm. So the key things with the super insulated house, obviously insulation, but a um, I, I really like your description that in that perfect scenario, it looks it looks obvious. You have the sun angle in the summer solstice, and then you have the sun angle in the winter solstice, and it looks great. You put a big 600 to 900 millimeter eave, and it solves your problems. You don't overheat, but you get the, the winter sun. But the point is that that ideal situation only happens around about midday, and you get all this exactly. other weird stuff going on as you put uh, different – in, in the morning and the evening of the sun coming in and particularly afternoon you see you get this sun sneaking around and doing doing weird things from the west um so you can't rely on that and then tell us about thermal mass is thermal mass um useless um essentially <laughs> Essentially, that's um, the consensus of the experts who are talking about it now, that the problem with the whole thermal mass is that it's not easily controllable. Yeah. That, you know, if you're expecting to, the sun to heat up the floor, well, what if the sun isn't there at that particular time? Um, the other problem with thermal mass Which I think is, clients have often said, yeah, people who have, have heard that for the first time, they say, well, what if it's not sunny? And I think as designers and architects, we've kind of – defended the position haven't we and said oh no but it'll be it'll work out over it's like a flywheel it'll work out over a period of time and, and the other thing also is that um i finally there's this engineer in calgary another very cold place uh who finally through his work he's got a wonderful website called healthyheating.com and what i learned from him again is that thermal mass and your does not work well with your skin 
that if the floor is too cold, it just sucks the life out of your feet and you want rugs. And if the floor is too warm, you get uncomfortable because the bulk of our thermal sensors are in our hand and our head and in our feet. And the thermostat controlling the air temperature isn't really uh, what is governing comfort. What's governing comfort is this thing called mean radiant temperature. Your body loses heat to cold surfaces and it picks heat up from warm surfaces. And uh, this is something that's quite complex that almost everybody ignores, but actually creates a problem with thermal mass because if the floor is too warm you're going to be uncomfortable and if it's too cold you're going to be uncomfortable and that hints at another reason why passive house as opposed to passive solar is such a good idea because one of the parameters they have is surface temperature isn't it of the the building yes not just the ambient temperature so the the temperature of the the wall, the internal walls, the floors, and the glass as well. And th- this is one thing that struck me when I first heard about this because I, I have never been in a house in New Zealand that doesn't have condensation on the glass on the inside. Right. And, and I just thought that was a mistake because I, I thought, how is that even possible to have glass that is at a reasonable temperature on the inside in the middle of winter? But that's one of the parameters, isn't it, of, of yes. passive house? Absolutely. It's one of the parameters and it's one of the things that made me realize that how right they are about this. It's when, when you really get in and learn the physiology of why we are comfortable. Mm. Changes the way you think about these things. You start saying, oh God, don't try and sell me a Nest thermostat to say that that's going to make me comfortable because that's only temperature is just only one really small factor of comfort. And that's the temperature of the air as well, as opposed yes. to the temperature of the the actual fabric of the house. Yeah, you could have a thermostat running a furnace that's cranking out the warm air, and you're sitting next to a cold window and, and a cold wall, and you're still going to be miserable. Mm. Now, the other thing that um, strikes me about this conversation is that it's incredibly recent. I mean, we're talking... This stuff's just come out uh, in, a, in a matter of months. But even, even that shift in the last couple of years that you describe, that is incredibly recent stuff in the time span of building and construction, given that we are still largely building houses the same way we did 100 years ago. Oh, God, yes. So what does this mean in terms of changing the industry? Is this just kind of scratching the surface or is there a – a bigger movement in behind this is actually going to uh, induce some change into the whole industry. I think it's just scratching the surface in the sense that the whole industry is not geared towards green design or these kinds of things. But the people who are involved at the cutting edge of it, I think, are doing some serious rethinking. Again, this isn't new. This was yeah. known back in from the 70s from the work of Harold Orr. It was just ignored. I mean, uh, one passive house expert sent me a paper that was written in 1982 that basically laid all this out. Yeah. But when I was in I was in school when that house came out, I was a practicing architect in 82 when that report came out, but we never saw it. It never got out there. We kept going in the way that we thought was right. And it's just been more recently that like Joe Listbrook and I see, I can't pronounce it either. <laughs> and all the building science people and yeah. everyone 
is just beginning to really catch on, that are really beginning to see this. Um, it's one of the problems I have in t teaching sustainable design. It's not like you're teaching Shakespeare. It changes every year. You know, <laughs> you have to kind of say, oh, my God, look at this. I taught this six years ago, and look at what I have to say now. But that's kind of a nice analogy because, like Shakespeare, there, there were things that made sense back then and it often get quoted but put in a modern context. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. This is not, there's nothing new in good literature, really. There's nothing new in good design. It's just no. it, it's rehashing and, and modernization of old ideas and, and, and learning from the mistakes as well, I think, and, and realizing, well, maybe that wasn't such a good path to go down, but this was, and what can we, you know, how can we accelerate that? What, one one, my... one, sorry, one, one of the things that I, we talked about thermal mass, but the other important thing is air tightness, which um, obviously was a big part of that super insulated. Or was that a big part of the super insulated house, the air tightness? Uh, yes. Yes, um, because if, if, the, if the house is leaky, then the insulation serves almost no function because the air is just changing anyway from the drafts. Yeah. So, you know, you can't have one without the other. Um, it's, I remember. In the 70s, when people started really worrying about energy efficiency, they would uh, build walls with a lot more insulation, and then they didn't put in enough ventilation. And so you were getting these sick, built, sick building syndromes. Yeah. And so they started increasing the amount of air exchange to, uh, to make it healthier inside. And what happened is, of course, if you're bringing in all the outside air and changing all the inside air, then the insulation doesn't matter at all. Yeah. And it's, you're just you know, running your furnace and doing everything through the furnace. So that's why air tightness is critical if the insulation is going to be any good at all and why the mechanical ventilation is so critically important to keep the health aspects of it, to keep the humidity levels where they should be, to keep the toxins out of the air. And that's going to be the next big change that I think is going to come down that's the inevitable result of super insulation and air tightness, mm. and that's health. And you know that you'll go to an American house in a lot of the sort of uh, wonderful green houses and you'll see that they've got insulation and air tightness and then they've got vinyl flooring and they've got a million chemicals under their yeah. vanity and they've got all these toxins going there and people painting their nails with formaldehyde. And, <laughs> you know, you just reach the point that We've got their three whole. Th there are three legs that this whole thing stands on, and that's the, the insulation, the air tightness, and the air quality. And air quality isn't just the few percent of change. We've got to keep this stuff out of the air. Yeah. So I think the next big thing you're going to see is really building sort of healthy materials becoming a very, very big part of green building. And it isn't now. Um, are people where you live scared of air tightness? Um, yes. They're not like they are in, you know, my parents' generation, they grew up, uh, nobody ever closed a window. It may be freezing, but you slept in 20 degrees because fresh air, fresh air, outside yeah. air. And when you seal up a house, it's toxic, which in those days when everybody was cooking on gas stoves and had open fireplaces and things like that, you know, it probably was. Yeah. Um, 
so air tightness does worry people. It also requires some maintenance. People have to know what they're dealing with and uh, be able to look at it. In really cold climates, the heat recovery ventilators can actually ice up and then they, people find they've got no ventilation at all. So these things require a little bit more care when you're talking about a mechanical ventilation system. Mm. In my 100-year-old house that I live, and I don't have a problem, you know, the wind just blows <laughs> through it. I've got fresh air all the time. Uh, but So I never worry about the quality of my air. I just worry about my heating bill. So that, that brings us uh, back to um, renovating old buildings. Are you going to... Uh, make your house into a super insulated house? Uh, no, I am not. I, um, I, I just downsized, renovated the house after my kids grew up and moved out. And so that I live in half the house, we tripled the, by duplexing the house, turning it into two units. I tripled the population density. So I can honestly say the energy use per capita has dropped by, by a third. Right. Um, I built this, rebuilt the back of it really well, but I still have that heritage um, preservationist in me. Yeah. And I didn't want to lose the beautiful 100-year-old wood and the windows that, because new windows are not made nearly as well as 100-year-old windows. So I got some special insulating storms to go in the inside. I did my absolute best to seal it as tightly as I could, which is a lost cause in a house of this age, bought the most efficient furnace that I could find and did as much as I could. But no, at some point, even someone who's as concerned about this as me, I think everybody has to make trade-offs. Yeah. And if you're in a, if you're in a beautiful 100-year-old Victorian house, you don't want to wrap it in insulation and stucco. Yeah. And... Because I mean, I'm fascinated by this as well. Because at least we've got about uh, one and a half million houses in New Zealand, and at least a million of those were built before insulation was even required. Right. Which leaves us with this legacy problem, and and I think one of the biggest building uh, problems isn't about the the new ones that we need apparently, uh, because that's kind of easy to get those right. Not that we are, but theoretically, no, it's, yes, exactly. theoretically, it's easy to get those right. But the existing building stock is where the problem is, and how possible is it or should we retrofit those existing houses to a high standard or should we take a pragmatic approach and go down the middle or you know, how do we decide what to do with the existing existing homes? It's a huge problem. I mean, there are existing homes that have sort of frame walls that you can get in and you can upgrade them easily. Um, there are others like my own, which is eight inches solid brick and then plaster inside where you can't do anything without really destroying the fabric of the house. Mm. There's people who restore these houses really badly. Like they say, oh, I've got a brick house. I'm going to put like six inches of urethane foam on the inside of it. And what happens there is that that the walls used to dry out because moisture, uh, the moisture would be driven out by the heat differential of the yeah. inside and the outside. So then when people go and say, oh, I'm retrofitting my house to be so insulated, then it rains in the house, the rain water gets in, you go through here, freeze-thaw cycles, and they destroy the house in 10 years. So there's so much building science that goes on to retrofitting old houses that... 
it becomes that you have to start looking at other things like uh, what's the population density in the house? Like, can we get more people living in the same area? And the single most important thing that is still the biggest driver of our energy use and of everything else is how do people get there? Yeah. I mean, how, how are they getting around? Do they bicycle or are they driving a big SUV? Um, you know, this when you do all these studies, like I've looked at green office buildings with lead platinum where the company's moved out of town and they've got to also build a 200-car garage. <laughs> but that doesn't and, have a writing on it. Yes. That's not part of the writing. No. Yeah. Look, so, uh, you know. We've got, we've got to sort of look where the priorities are. There was a big scandal last year where the greenest lead platinum building in all of New York, uh, when they did another analysis, which was the energy use of the building, it actually really used a lot of energy. Why? Because it was a brand new building and they packed the people in three times as tightly and they all had big computer monitors because they were traders, even though they were efficient. So the actual use per capita becomes a really important thing to look at, not just the aggregate use and yeah. the whole spectrum of how, they, how the energy is used, whether it's driving, whether it's heating, whether it's cooling all becomes into the mix. It, it is, it's, it's not simple, but I do not feel that you can take just a blanket, oh my God, we've got to do this to every single building. I guess that's a bit again of the historical preservation and preservationist in me that we've got to sometimes balance these things. Yeah, and you mentioned building science there as well, and I think that that is a, certainly for me, I'm a bit biased because I'm working in building science at the moment, but... Um, that's a great way of treating buildings, at least cohorts of buildings, differently relative to what they need, and using science to understand what's the what's going to be the best outcome for the for the best investment. Yeah, what people do here, the first thing they do, I've got to upgrade my house, is they say, oh, I'm going to go buy new windows. That's because the window salesmen are really persuasive. Yeah. It's, concrete discrete thing you can see yeah. that you know oh yes if i change the windows i'm really doing something yeah, whereas yeah. if you go in and insulate your attic who sees that you, yeah. do, you know it's and pretty unsexy so, and so it's a real problem that you know people do all the wrong things first that if you actually did it all what gives you the most bang for the buck yeah, the windows would be the last thing to happen. And we have exactly the same thing with ventilation systems, where it's really a result of a, a super effective sales team selling a one-size-fits-all uh, um, uh, pressure, positive pressure um, um, supply-only ventilation systems to about ten right. percent of the of the houses, when really they should probably only only be in about one percent of the houses. Um, but they've just such an effective sales process that there's kind of blanketed the whole housing sector. Um, but it's the same, same sort of thing. You know, it's a one size fits all that then that becomes the assumption of what is the, the first step. Or ground source heat pumps that sometimes called geothermal that became yeah. really huge here. Everybody said, Oh, we're saving so much money. So they spend $30,000 sort of drilling all of these pipes into the ground to do all this and these complicated systems that when they actually look at over the course of the like, don't save that much money or incredibly mm. expensive. And actually over time in Canada where the ground, where it gets again, really cold, they find, you know, they 
the whole ground temperature around the pipes changes to where over the course of years, their usefulness just goes down, 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 and down. Wow. Um, so, you know, that's new building science, the whole ground source heat pump thing being applied by a million salesmen who really don't know what they're doing, yeah. they're doing and people being promised vast energy sales, uh, savings that don't materialize. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So no wonder people just throw up their hands and just say, give me what the builder's giving me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, look, uh, we could obviously carry on, uh, Lloyd, but I'm running out of time. Um, great to talk to you. People should follow you uh, online. Where is the best place for them to do that? Treehugger.com yep. is the best place. And if you can't find me, just click on the design button. Yep. And That's the best be place. There. Cool. And you're also on uh, Twitter and around uh, social yes, media I'm, as well. Yes, I'm Lloyd Alter on Twitter. I love Twitter. I'm not so great in the other social media, but I do cover Twitter a lot. Perfect. Thank you very much for your time, Lloyd. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I will continue to um, – you're pretty prolific when it comes to writing on to hot topics. So um, people can definitely stay in touch with – new trends and what's going on inside your head and uh, around the world in, in, in architecture. I'd be happy to. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Lloyd. Lloyd Alter there, who is formerly an architect, but has also been a developer and a whole bunch of other stuff, but mainly now is a writer and a prolific contributor to particularly treehugger.com, which is a fantastic website. I highly recommend people subscribing to that and also following Lloyd and others on Twitter as well. Shout, shout out to him on Twitter as well. Say um, that you heard him on the show and uh, that you loved hearing from him and he'd be a great person to follow because he's on the pulse as well with things like this which are uh, happening out there in the world of higher performance homes, building science and all things sustainable and green. So uh, just a reminder, I've got that seminar coming up 12th of November. This is uh, 2015 November here in Auckland. So I'd love to see you there if you are interested in putting together a good performing house for yourself. And whether you're designing at the early stages of uh, doing some concept plans or whether you just want to make an existing home more comfortable and warmer, then that would be a great session to come along. It's only a couple of hours. Um, and it's a bit of a trial run, see how it goes. But um, if there's enough interest, we'll do some more of those. Be, uh, and we could even do some more around the country as well. Thank you very much for tuning in. Now, don't forget the uh, um, Dennis who gave us a little bit of a blurb about ProClimber. I've got him actually coming up on a future episode because um, he is doing some great stuff down in Queenstown, which I want to share with you as well. That's enough for this week. Bye for now. Now go make a better place to live. <laughs>